Hello everyone. Before we get started with this episode, I wanted to make a quick correction. In this episode, I cited 30 million as the amount moved by green banks in 2019. This was a mistake. I was looking at a particular green bank in the American Green Bank Consortium's annual industry report. The total number is around 5.6 billion. With that, I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. Today, I'm very excited to, excited to have with me Paul Scharfenberger of the Colorado Clean Energy Fund. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jordan. I'm excited to talk to you today, and uh, thanks so much for the invite. So the Colorado Clean Energy Fund is a green bank within Colorado that specializes in financing green and clean energy projects throughout the state. And I've been pretty obsessed with green banks for a while because I think they're one of the the lowest barrier to entry ways to help move capital into green and clean energy projects. Um, but before we get into kind of what a green bank is and what it does and and all that. I guess first, Paul, how did you become the head of the Colorado Clean Energy Fund, which is the only green bank in the state, right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, this is uh, Colorado's green bank. Um, I actually kind of created the role from my previous role, which worked out well. Um, but just going back a little bit further, my my background is in traditional finance. I, I started in investment banking early in my career. Uh, before switching over to to climate finance, um, I went to work for the state of the Colorado Energy Office in which I developed several public-private partnerships uh, finance programs to try to address some of the finance gaps that we saw in our clean energy space. Um, and we were successful with those programs, but towards the end of um, my term at the state, we still uh, recognized that there were still finance barriers remaining in our market. And having seen the proliferation of green banks in other states of the country and how effective they were at addressing those gaps, uh, we undertook the effort of creating a green bank while I was at the Colorado Energy Office. Um, that green bank was uh, introduced in de December of 2018 by former Governor Hickenlooper. Uh, and then in 2019, I essentially went to work in terms of uh, procuring our operating capital and establishing our business plan and all that good stuff. And then I finally jumped full time to the Colorado Clean Energy Fund in September of uh, 2020. So I am like an engineer. I'm just going to start with that. And so the world of finance is basically opaque to me. So I guess before you got into energy finance, uh, what type of financing did you do before that? Like what type of where did you work before and what was the what was the role you did in, in finance? I don't know what a lot of the career paths are in finance. So I'm really intrigued by by this. Path. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I kind of chuckle and cringe to think about where I started in finance. And I'll explain that that comment. I, I actually started in Wall Street. So I had nothing to do with lending, nothing to do with clean energy finance. I was working with mutual funds, so very much in the investment side of things. Um, and I, I would be perfectly honest and say that I, I wasn't a, a huge fan of my job. I didn't enjoy it a ton. It, it just didn't align with where I saw my career heading uh, or where I wanted it to head. Um, and so actually, quite sadly, for the first seven or eight years of my career, I felt I didn't enjoy finance until this topic of climate change um, became of interest to me. And my, my research on the side into the topic and particularly renewable energy led me to understand that actually finance is one of the greatest barriers to the advancement of energy efficiency and renewable energy and just clean energy broadly. And so I was 
fortunate enough to have this light bulb moment where I recognized my naivete and that I may not have enjoyed the specific work in finance that I was doing, but um, uh, there was a strong role to play in terms of finance um, uh, working towards creating uh, greater social good. So yeah, I, I started in a very different place than I do uh, than where I am today. Um, but fortunately, I had that foundation of finance. I, I then decided to go back to grad school and get an MBA and a master's in environmental studies. I worked at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and their commercialization and deployment division and then their project finance division. And that ultimately gave me the basis and foundation to get more involved in structuring programs or products uh, focused on increasing clean, en clean energy lending specifically. So always in the finance world, just in a very different place uh, and ultimately went through um, training to, to get more involved in uh, actual clean energy lending. I think people's pathways into clean energy are pretty fun. Uh, that's like part of the reason that I, I love interviewing people on it. And I think it's funny how sometimes people are in a very not happy place with their career, but then they apply it to clean energy and it really just switches it because financing is a huge problem in clean energy. And so taking some of that uh, very strong financing knowledge, it sounds like you had in a, in a field that maybe wasn't that fulfilling and turning it to clean energy sounds, sounds like it was pretty uh, impactful for you, I guess. It was. I think the thing that was missing from my first roles was was just the objective. I had, I had grown up thinking I wanted to do something for this world to improve its condition, and I had no idea what that was. Um, and I think the realization that I could apply finance uh, towards a really positive objective was, again, a light bulb moment for me and um, really changed the trajectory of my career. And now I'm able to uh, essentially utilize a skill set that I had and um, uh, put it towards a personal passion and makes me feel better at the end of the day. So when you're able to put all that together, um, it can definitely change your career and, and, and that flows over into your personal life and enjoyment as well. So I guess with that and kind of with understanding where you came from in finance and moved over to, to clean energy finance, I guess let's get started on a uh, what I want to talk about today, which is green banks. So first, what is a green bank uh, for people who might not be familiar? Well, I'm going to start with the esoteric definition, because as you mentioned earlier, I think finance is opaque to a lot of people. And it's primarily because a lot of finance people like to use financial jargon that makes it sound complicated. And, and really, at the end of the day, finance is, is not very complicated. So I'm going to give the esoteric definition that, that a lot of folks will see online when they look up green banks, and then we'll unpack it a little bit. So green banks are mission-driven financial institutions that use innovative financing to connect clean energy, resilience, and climate-related projects with capital. Let's unpack it, as I said. I mentioned mission-driven. So green banks essentially care more about deploying clean energy rather than maximizing profit. And that's a really important uh, point to highlight because this ultimately is going to help explain why green banks are able to finance projects that a lot of other financial institutions are unable to finance. So another statement that I, or another phrase that I included in that statement was finance institution, which doesn't mean bank. In fact, green bank is a bit of a misnomer. These are not depositories. Uh, we essentially use the term bank because um, the general public often connotes banks with lending. 
Um, but it should be noted, a green bank is not a depository institution. These are essentially specialty investment funds. I also mentioned innovative financing. So green banks use financing, not grants. And financing means that capital is eventually expected to be returned or repaid. And this ultimately helps to maximize the impact of each dollar that a green bank deploys. So because of this approach, green banks focus on markets where there is a potential for payback. And that generally means proven tech, technically viable projects that are well past the research and development stage. And then lastly, I also mentioned connecting projects with capital. And what this really means is that Green Bank's attempt to partner with traditional lenders to complete projects. It's not their preference to go it alone. They prefer to essentially work with traditional capital providers to support projects that otherwise would not be supported. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but let me move to a few examples of what I just described. So we'll find that small commercial buildings and small commercial clean energy projects have a really hard time getting finance. We're talking projects in the $100,000 range. And they have a hard time getting finance because lenders don't make much money on those projects. And so a green bank desiring to get traditional lenders to support these projects can come in, finance these projects, and when they aggregate them to a size that's attractive to a traditional investor, let's call it they finance 10 $100,000 projects, they now have a million dollar portfolio, they can then sell that portfolio to those traditional investors. It's an innovative financing tool called warehousing. Um, and so it gives you an example here of this is a specialty investment funds. It's focused more on supporting clean energy than profits. And so it's willing to do something that traditional lenders often aren't, which is finance small projects that don't generate a ton of profit. But they want to invite traditional lenders to participate. And they do that by selling the portfolio of projects downstream to traditional lenders. And the last point is really important because at the end of the day, what we need to do to fight climate change is mobilize trillions of dollars. We need to stop talking about hundreds of millions and billions. We need trillions of dollars. I just want to say how much I appreciate how much you talked slowly through <laughs> that for me. Financing is not simple in the slightest. Like the more I navigate this morass of just how to get money from people who have it to people who need it in like a way that makes it incentivized for the people who have it to give it like that that is just very complicated to me. And there's all these, these, all these things going on. Um, so for example, I'm going to like talk through a couple of these terms and then we'll go back to kind of the main point of this. But like you mentioned warehousing, which is aggregating a bunch of small loans to sell to like a traditional large financing company after you kind of walk them through it. Uh, isn't that securitization? I I apologize. I thought that was basically where you took a bunch of loans and chopped them up and give them out, gave them out to different people, so that instead of one person having one loan, each person had a small part of ten loans or something. I guess. How is that different? Well, it's not really, and that's a, a great question. So it's just two different approaches to essentially uh, achieve the same goal. So securitization is one way in which you essentially take a bunch of a, a portfolio of a bunch of small projects, um, but you securitize it. You're essentially getting it rated. You go through a much more dense, complicated financial process, uh, fairly significant transaction costs associated with 
the securization, the getting the ratings, um, going through uh, either public or private placement of that portfolio. Uh, so it's just it, typically you're talking about the scaling uh, that is different than warehousing. Warehousing, and this again is where the terminology comes into play. Uh, I'll throw out the word balance sheet investor, which sounds complicated, but it's not. So I'll use the Colorado Clean Energy Fund as an example. We're really concerned that small commercial projects are not getting supported by the existing clean energy lenders in Colorado. And this is problematic. So we're concerned about this problem and we wanna fix it. So what we're planning to do is finance a bunch of small projects, but instead of waiting to get to 30 million or a $40 million portfolio, which then would trigger securitization, that would make more financial sense to take that route. Uh, we can seek what are called balance sheet investors, which essentially would just be other lenders that are interested in taking tranches of this uh, of these paper off of our balance sheet. They give us a million dollars for 10, $100,000 projects. We transfer those assets to them and we recapitalize our loan pool, which allows us to finance the next 10 projects. So it's two different instruments that essentially achieve the same goal. Um, and what I found in my career, uh, it, it, the difference in that approach is primarily based on volume. But I'm told that financing is simple, so <laughs> obviously that makes sense to me. No, I think it's very, I think it's very interesting. Firstly, just so people can understand, you mentioned sizes like small and large. In the financing world, what is a numeric value for things like small and large? Uh, generally, what we're seeing across the country is that projects less than $500,000 are considered small. But if you're talking about electricity generation, um, and I should note, utility scale uh, electricity generation projects typically don't have a challenge getting financing. They're large projects, uh, often case tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and large financial institutions love those projects. They make a lot of money off of them. So on the generation side, we're typically talking about projects less than $10 million, I would say, would be small. But it depends, again, on who you're talking to. If you're talking to a Goldman Sachs, they probably don't want to see a project less than $50 million come across their table. If you're talking to a smaller uh, maybe regional or state bank or local bank, um, maybe they're willing to go down to 10 million. But I would say those projects below that, that's where you start having to cobble together a capital stack. Um, they become more challenging under that mark. So it does depend a little bit on whether you're talking about energy efficiency, renewable energy, generation. Um, but hopefully that gives you a, a bit of a feel as to the sizes we're talking about. Yeah, that is that is very helpful. Um because this, as I mentioned, is just not my world. And like having lower limits on the amount of money it takes to get something financed is like pretty novel to me. It's like, oh, wait, that's like, that's interesting. Um, but there is one more like phrase you used in your kind of introduction to green banks that I want to I wanna bring out because particularly around clean energy policy and legislation, a lot of people talk about costs. How much would it cost to, to deploy large-scale clean energy across the entire grid um, or across the entire economy if we're talking about more than the electricity sector? You use the word mobilizing. And I think that's very interesting because when you talked about the mission of green banks, you're not losing money on these projects. 
you're just maybe not making as much money if you financed whatever energy product project came across your desk, including dirty energy or kind of polluting energy, I guess is the, the better way to say it. So you're not like when we talk about the numbers required to transition to a clean energy economy, when you say mobilizing, I think it's interesting because you know, we're going to be spending money on energy infrastructure and energy projects. It's just maybe reducing the profit a little bit and then still mobilizing that finance rather than just like, oh, we're losing trillions of dollars to clean energy. And that's not the same. Like mobilizing investments is something we're going to do either way. We're just making a trade-off on maximizing profits versus, you know, maximizing clean energy or non-polluting energy sources. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. I mean, there's a few things that I would maybe uh, counter there. So I do think, it, again, and it goes to what asset class are we talking about? If we're talking about large scale utility renewable projects, I would argue they're just as profitable as dirty energy projects. And in most cases, actually right now across the country, more profitable, uh, particularly if you're talking about coal. So really you're not sacrificing profits in any respect on those projects. Now, a lot of green banks don't focus on utility scale projects because again, we're trying to fill gaps. We're trying to figure out what is not currently getting financed and how do we work with others to get those projects financed? Um, I use the small commercial buildings example. We're also seeing low and moderate income households really being left behind in this clean energy revolution. And that's a problem. Uh, and we want to address that. So the specific products that green banks focus on, uh, there may not be as much profit there, but I do think you make a really solid point that there's going to be money spent towards these investments and in, in the energy commodity uh, anyways. And so we are trying to shift that investment over to clean energy. And it might be in a socioeconomic class, like low and moderate income households that maybe don't represent as much of a, a profit opportunity for a lender, which keeps traditional lenders away from investing towards those communities. But you're absolutely right. We're not in the business of losing money. Um, one of the ethos of a green bank is to be financially self-sufficient. And, and I'm sure we'll get into capital sources for green banks. Um, a lot of capital sources do come from the public sector, but all green banks operate on the principle of being a financially solvent company. My favorite thing about this is I work with a lot of scientists and engineers and stuff. And scientists and engineers have like a very strong about opinion about like what non-scientists and non-engineers do with their time. And particularly as it relates to people in like business and finance, there's like a lot of like, I don't know, condescending remarks made in engineering circles. And like the number of projects that are technically sound I have seen die on the pyre of unfinanceability. I'm like, oh, wait, like, this is nonsense. Like, financeability and, like, access to capital markets is oftentimes, like, more important than technical elegance in a lot of the systems I see. I think my first experience that I, I referenced earlier uh, at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory was within the commercialization and deployment division. It was ultimately trying to determine... Uh, how do you address uh, the technology valley of death and the commercialization valley of death? These very um, scary <laughs> worded terms that essentially just describe the challenges that innovative technologies face when they're trying to go through uh, the financial challenges they face when they're going through the innovation cycle. Um, um, and I think this touches on the point of 
there's technological risk, but innovative applications of proven technologies almost present as much of a barrier as the initial technology risk. Uh, I think community solar is a great example of that. And I touched on earlier, low income households being left behind and in the clean energy revolution. Well, low-income households have a really hard time accessing solar energy. And community solar could be a great avenue for doing that. But it then comes down to this innovative application of solar energy, touching these households that typically aren't bankable. And we're still having a hard time financing community solar projects to support these households. So I think point being, even when technological risk is completely eliminated, that does not mean it's going to be deployed at scale. And that really is why green banks exist. With this episode, I really wanted to dive into that kind of innovative financial products. And I wanted to dive into the claim of the green bank system. So green banks in the United States are generally part of the American Green Bank Consortium. So according to the American Green Bank Consortium, Last year, in 2019, green banks leveraged about $30 million of investment towards green projects. The crux of the claim of the American Green Bank Consortium, a phrase that I've seen repeated time and time again, is that by having access to public funding, green banks are able to provide private funding or they leverage their access to public funding, usually in some sort of public-private partnership. And that allows them to de-risk, I guess, I guess uh, projects to the point where private capital gets involved. I guess, can you explain that to me? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and hearing you describe that, I, I, I think you did a really good job of that. But I, I now do understand why this is so amorphous and complicated for folks to understand it's 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 there's a lot of jargon thrown in there so let's unpack that a little bit we're talking again mostly green banks are focused on what isn't getting financed and that's why public funding is necessary because really there is if there were private sector lenders willing to do these projects they'd be doing them already or in some cases, they are offering financing for these projects, but they're providing terrible rates and terms, which really makes it so that the projects can't move forward anyway. So that's really why the public sector funding comes into play. But let's again go to a very specific example. And this is what the green banks talk about in terms of leveraging private investment. Uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, low and moderate income households. So if we are thinking about a residential household looking to obtain financing, traditional private lenders have a box for underwriting those investments. And that box always includes FICO score. And there's not a perfect correlation between FICO and income levels, but there's a pretty good correlation. So what I'm essentially saying is low and moderate income households in many cases have uh, moderate FICO scores, or maybe you're in that gray area. And so if you're a homeowner and you wanna pursue an energy efficiency loan, but you have a, a, a moderate FICO score uh, that doesn't meet their criteria that they include in underwriting, you're not gonna get that loan. Or if you are, you're gonna get an insanely high interest rate attached to that loan because that's how lenders compensate for their perceived risk. So a green bank 
recognizes that these traditional lenders are viewing this from a very static box that has not changed for decades. Uh, for one, the lenders aren't taking into account that most of these projects reduce the utility costs that the homeowner has. So they're not actually factoring in that there's a positive cash flow coming from these projects. But instead of asking that lender to change their box, um, which is going to take forever, and, and, and we would be unwise in the clean energy industry to try to beat lenders over the head to do something that they they just don't do, a green bank instead will approach that bank and say, what if we bring our capital and put it in a high risk position? You have these risk sharing mechanisms that green banks use. And this goes back to the, the annual report from the Green Bank Consortium. These are those innovative financing tools that green banks use, often with public capital. They'll capitalize that loan loss reserve with public funds um, that then allow them to leverage and generate private sector investment that otherwise wouldn't be generated unless the green bank steps in and intervenes. And they often do that with that public funding mechanism. And, and one last thing to note on that, energy efficiency, renewable energy programs that have been deployed across the country, the data we see from those programs have very low default rates. Uh, often in the realm of less than 3% default rates. And this is commensurate with what we see with auto loans and home mortgages, meaning these investments perform just like traditional investments. And so what the green banks are saying is, we don't think this person's not going to pay you. They're going to pay. They're going to pay you just like they pay their car loan, just like they pay their mortgage. And in fact, they're probably in a better position to do it because unlike the car, this is saving them money. This is putting them in a better financial position. So this goes back to the public funds. A lot of these public funds are used in very innovative ways um, in which the money is never lost. Uh, the money is just sitting there. And, and ultimately, as those investments perform and the loan loss reserve isn't even tapped by that lender, those public funds can then be recycled for additional uh, clean energy investing. So that's a lot of, and there are more financial tools that green banks use beyond loan loss reserves and warehousing, but it gives you a feel for with a very small amount of public funds, they use it innovatively enough to incentivize private sector lenders to do stuff that they otherwise wouldn't do. I think that's the irony of green banks is ultimately green banks are mostly trying to work themselves out of a job. We want the traditional capital markets to do this so that they get comfortable with it. And when they do, then they can start deploying their capital at scale. And, and that's, again, really the name of the game. I am so glad, Paul, that we have come to agreement that financing is not simple. I'm glad we've reached that point at this, at this, at this point of the podcast. But I guess if I, if I may for a second, I'm really going to try to, after your explanation, really pull this out into exactly as I see it from an engineering perspective. So as I see it from an engineer, all financing is is using enough big data sets to try and lend money at a positive rate of return and adjust the interest rate based upon the risk you assess from those big data sets. And all these things in there kind of are different ways to slice it, but that's what it seems like to me financing is. And I remember going to the bank, especially as a kid, and like my parents doing things like car and house loans, and you basically just go to a different desk within the same bank they're like oh that person does cars 
that person does houses. They basically just had access to different data sets and they could make an intelligent guess on your likelihood to pay back a loan and then assess an interest rate from that and like give you the loan. And so it seems like the end goal of all this green bank work is really to just to put a new desk in many major lending institutions where now instead of like going to a new institution to get financing for green projects, you just go to a different desk within whichever institution that you're like used to going through. So like if I bank through such and such bank now, instead of just having an auto and a home loan, they now have like energy efficiency and solar panel, renewable energy loans. And it's really just, to me, the green bank is so interesting because it's, it's kind of like a no risk or very low cost way for states to begin building up that data set to make clean energy and energy efficiency projects uh, accessible to traditional lending institutions through this kind of experiment of the green bank system. I think you just described it better than I've heard almost anybody else describe it. I think that was perfect. And and that is what we're trying to do. We want this to be a mainstream lending product. And I think one thing to recognize is these lenders have been providing auto loans and mortgages for decades. They know it through and through. They don't know solar. They don't know energy efficiency. They don't know a lot of these uh, clean energy applications. And so you're exactly right. We are trying to create a, another desk within their institution for that solar loan to go with your auto loan, to go with your home mortgage. Um, but it takes a partner to get them there. And that, again, I'm, uh, and I really want to make sure that I reiterate this point. Um, we can't ask these lenders to do something that they're not used to doing. We can't ask them to change their entire core competencies um, because we understand the world of clean energy and we know that it's a, a good investment. Um, and that's what the green banks essentially recognize. Instead of asking these lenders to take this leap of faith, we're essentially saying, we understand this. We can put our capital to work in a way that minimizes your risk, allows you time to aggregate data, get to know these products, and once you see that they are sound investments and they uh, have similar default rates as these other products that you kn have known for decades, then you won't need us anymore. And that is, that's what we're hoping to see down the road. Firstly, I love compliments. So when you say, I got it right, I will just take that and feel good inside. Um, but I, the only reason I like understand it even to a fraction of where I would like to understand it is because I've spent like hours reading about them and I both think they're like incredibly innovative but again this finance system is so opaque and so I've struggled so long to try to understand and so that's where I've kind of landed on both financing being so important but it's so hard to kind of communicating its importance to people who don't think about this space all the time. Um, with that, I kind of want to get into a little bit of the controversy or the negative side of green banks. And I don't say negative in that you are causing negative things with a green bank, more that some of the things that people have used to say that green banks might not be this just uh, resoundingly positive institution have said about them. I don't particularly agree with them because I think green banks are lovely, but let, let's go through it just to like have a good faith discussion about the other side of this. Um, so in particular, you said commercially viable technologies and green technologies. So what do you define as green technologies? Well, I think if you ask each of the green banks, they would probably define it slightly differently. So I think that's one caveat is just to recognize that each green bank has their own unique mission. 
Uh, and they each uh, probably approach this a little differently. The one thing they all have in common is a mission to address climate change. And then most of them also have additional objectives such as improving resiliency or serving low-income communities. For the Colorado Clean Energy Fund, our overriding criteria for investment is if the project will lead to reduced greenhouse gas emissions. But our subcategories then, so if we were to list them, I would say maximizing emissions reduction per dollar deployed is, is our overriding objective and that's how we would define green. Our second subcategory would be prioritizing key communities. And then number three would be maximizing consumer benefits. So we, we don't want our investments to lead to increased energy costs for consumers. And so I would put that as our, our third uh, objective. So like combined heat and power, would you find that's a combined heat and power project? Currently, that's not an objective priority of ours, the Colorado Clean Energy Fund. And I, and I should state, we, uh, we are developing one particular product primarily because um, we didn't receive a large initial capitalization from the state like a lot of other green banks did. So we unfortunately don't have the luxury of lending towards all different sectors within the clean energy space. We hope to someday. Uh, but currently, we're focused on uh, that small uh, commercial finance gap that I discussed earlier, essentially financing small commercial energy efficiency and clean energy projects, aggregating them, and selling portfolios downstream. Uh, so no, we wouldn't support that project, but not from a mission or an ethos perspective, um, primarily just based on a lack of resources. Um, I can say that there would be some uh, green banks with more of an environmental justice uh, aim that maybe wouldn't finance that project uh, because ultimately it's still generating greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, so I want to dive into that for just a second because I had a list of projects, but I was just going to go through the list until I found one that you would finance. So we found one. And so we'll start there. Uh, but just for the, the listeners' uh, benefit, combined heat and power is essentially that when you generate electricity from a thermal system, usually combustion, but also, you know, nuclear and solar thermal are, are thermal systems, the transition from thermal energy to mechanical to electrical has an efficiency loss. And there is some waste heat rejected. And so a combined heat and power system is usually uh, uh, a medium-sized operation, so some sort of uh, chemical processing, food processing facility that has a thermal load that is necessary for its production. They install, say, a combined heat and power natural gas system where they generate electricity and they provide heat to their process at a lower cost than purchasing electricity or just providing heat through uh, a single system. Now, these combined heat and power systems reduce emissions significantly, but they do still produce greenhouse gas emissions. And I think combined heat and power is so interesting because, you know, I want to see greenhouse gas emissions go to zero, but I think they're a really important stepping stone. And I think with green banks where this kind of gets really sticky is you are using public funds, whether or not they are consumed or just held in reserve to leverage private capital. But on top of these public funds, you're layering on definitions of green that maybe not everyone has reached a consensus on. And so I think the, the controversy or the critique, most of the critiques against green banks are rather uh, blunt and not very precise in a way that I think they probably just don't like clean energy or something. I don't know. But if I were to try and leverage the, the most accurate 
critique against green banks. It would be this kind of weird layering on top of public funds uh, based upon the organization's definition of green rather than necessarily like the state's definition of green. It's a, it's a really unique perspective. And I actually, I, and I, I almost embarrassed to say, I haven't given a ton of thought about this topic per se. I, and I actually, I hadn't come across that critique. Um, so I'm really glad we're discussing this. And I think it's a really important topic to discuss. Again, ours, Colorado Clean Energy Fund's unique in that we're the only green bank that exists in the country that wasn't capitalized with public funds. Um, so ours is a, a bit of a unique situation. We, we obviously invite public funds in the future, but we haven't received them to date. Um, I'd like to think if we did receive that fund from some public entity, whether it be the state or local government or even the federal government, uh, that we would seek to align our investment objectives with the entity providing that investment capital. And you can obviously always diversify your investment strategies and priorities by sourcing capital from other sources. There are philanthropic sources that you can uh, capitalize a green bank with. Me personally, um, I do think CHP has a, a role to play in terms of combating climate change. Um, but I, I do think ultimately, if that is a critique about green banks and, and having worked with um, all the green banks across the country, I can say these are teams of people that um, ultimately are really driven by combating climate change. Um, and, and, and ultimately, I, I believe, are, are very willing to work with uh, the, the capital providers that, that uh, capitalize their institutions. So I will say it, it kind of the devil is in the details of their mission statements. Um, and I would imagine those that do receive public funds, it would be obviously worth their while to align with the objectives of uh, that public funding. Um, but yeah, it, it's a unique, unique topic that I haven't actually given a ton of thought about. Um, and I hadn't come across that critique, but it's an interesting one. And I think something that um, folks in this realm, particularly the green bank realm should think about and should uh, maybe come together and try to work with a broader set of constituents to try to figure out what is this definition of green. But I will say across the clean energy spectrum, whether you're talking about environmental groups, environmental justice groups, clean energy lenders, advocates, policymakers, there's a lot of disagreement on what is the definition of green? Should we be keeping this stuff in the ground? Are there stepping stones? Are there not? So there's there's a lot of fragmentation in this world. A lot of people that want to combat climate change, we still don't have um, a lot of agreement. Well, there's quite a bit of agreement, but there isn't consensus agreement on exactly how to get there. Um, so I think these are important discussions for us to have as a, as a community. Thank you for that response. I recognize it kind of like came out of nowhere, I guess, but you know, from where I come from, so my background is in nuclear engineering, and now I work kind of more in the renewable energy space. And it's funny because many nuclear advocates on the global scale, so state level uh, green banks would never finance a nuclear project. There are billions of tens of billions of dollars. Um, and I have some numbers here, I'll add to it in a second, just to like drive that home. But particularly in the international clean energy finance space, a lot of nuclear advocates feel very slighted because there have been several high level institutions that have 
banned nuclear as a financing recipient for their clean energy funds. And so this like discussion about what is green and what is clean and what combats climate change and what is an acceptable energy source gets very interwoven on the international scale. I think on the, the state level, it's a, it's a lot less controversial most because a green banks are still very small and a very like nascent industry but b you know the type of small scale projects that green banks can finance you know if you had to finance a 100 megawatt natural gas carbon capture plant versus 52 megawatt solar arrays like it's just safer to have that distributed type and so distributed renewables just fit super easily into green bank financing rather than have these very complicated conversations about what counts as clean or polluting or like a good stepping stone or like a transition fuel source. I think that's right. And and really when you're looking at strategies for decarbonization, in my personal opinion, it should start with energy efficiency. Um, we need to essentially uh, reduce the problem as much as possible before we start cleaning up the electricity supply. And so I, I think you'll see, particularly here in the States, and, and, and I'm just now putting together those comments um, and now recognizing more of those critiques probably are on the international level. Some of the international green banks are much larger institutions. Um, and yes, I would imagine there are definitely those um, challenges taking place with which technologies they are supporting or not. I think you'll find more locally our institutions, unfortunately are actually much smaller institutions. The largest being the New York green bank was capitalized with $1 billion um, but most of the other green banks in the country were capitalized with less than $100 million, a few with just a few million dollars. So you will find most of the green banks in the country begin with energy efficiency and then move on to distributed generation. Uh, but very few are tackling larger projects. Um, so I think the deficiency of scale of our green banks maybe keeps them out of some of those uh, debates and arguments currently. But Again, we have large ambitions for the future. So I, I do think these are really important discussions for us to have. My opinion on nuclear has changed over the years several different times. Um, uh, and so, you know, my opinion today might be different than it is a year from now. But I think that's why it's important for us as a community here. We're all striving towards the same end objective. I think it's important to have open and honest, not only com conversations, but debates and disagreements to make sure that we are coalescing around a strong strategy for uh, addressing this problem, which we, we vitally need to address. So firstly, it's fun. It's always fun. Like people come to me, they're like, my opinion on nuclear has changed so many times. I was like, just tell me more. Because <laughs> that I live in this clean energy space, but I come from like very different amalgus backgrounds. Uh, but I do want to just quickly put some numbers to this for like people who are listening who might be peeved at green banks picking their own favorite technologies, picking winners and losers, would so, as some would like to say. Um, but in terms of nuclear in the United States, just to kind of throw a wrench in that idea that clean energy finance is being weaponized against them. You know, the Vogel units, unit three and four, which are under construction now and are the only two nuclear reactors under construction in the United States, uh, were both financed originally in 2008 for a price of $14 billion. They are behind schedule. They are supposed to go online in 2021 and 2022. They are probably not going to meet that. But as of 2019, their new financing cost is $28 billion. Um, <laughs> which is double. Let's just take that in for a moment. But the thing is with finance that I think is so interesting is 
there are wind plants that were financed in 2008 that are already making money because most uh, solar and wind and renewable and energy efficiency projects have a payback period of somewhere between, you know, eight and 20 years. Finance loves those projects more, not because of their favor for like wind and solar over nuclear, but just because currently nuclear projects are so big and so massive, you struggle like there are projects that you could go finance today that will be making money before nuclear plants that are being planned right now get steel in the ground. Like that's just the way it works. But I don't know. That's what makes finance so interesting from the clean energy perspective is it seems like such a necessary step. But also there are all these layers on top of it about the organization's preference, what is available to the state and where the funding originally comes from that I think are pretty hard to square for people who are new to the clean energy space. So. Yeah, I think those are, I think you're exactly right. And really, at the end of the day, we need to figure out how to optimally and most efficiently deploy capital to combat climate change. Uh, it's it's difficult, as we've seen, to come up with hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. And so I think you're exactly right. You're going to have different motivations from different lenders, um, different risk profiles that lenders are willing to take on. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we need to figure out how you most optimally and efficiently deploy capital because it's really hard to mobilize the amount of capital that we're talking about. It's extremely difficult. And we've seen that over the last few decades of, of almost complete inaction, um, particularly in our, our uh, federal level in terms of deploying capital at scale towards these technologies. Um, so with that, I wanted to kind of ask just a little bit about where the Colorado Clean Energy Fund is going. Um, so I guess one of my first questions is, any geothermal projects on the on the horizon? Unfortunately, no, not currently. <laughs> oh, that's just too bad. Geothermal <laughs> is my new favorite. But no, so I, I'm just kidding. Uh, what are some of the projects you're looking to head ahead to? And what are some of the things you're looking to do in the next few years? Yeah, so first, we talked about the small commercial clean energy uh, fund that we're setting up. So really trying to provide access to small businesses, access to capital to pursue clean energy projects. Um, so that seems to be a, a, a fairly easy finance gap for us to fill. Um, the next product that we're looking at is how do we figure out how to provide greater access to capital for low and moderate income households. Um, and there's a few different ways you can do this, but utility on bill finance, I think is one of the most um, innovative ways that you can reach low and moderate income households. We also have a lot of energy burdened homeowners in this state. And what I mean by energy burdened is that you have a very large percentage of homeowners in Colorado that pay in excess of 10% of their annual household income just towards their utility bills. And to put that into perspective, a, a middle or upper income household typically spends about one to 3% of their total annual household income towards utility costs. So this is really a problem and we, we need to address it. Um, and utility on bill finance seems to be a, a great solution for addressing it. That's pretty cool. And if I find any capital just lying around, I'll just send it your way. Um, so my final question of the day for you, Paul, is if I was part of a state that did not have a green bank system and I wanted to start it, how does a state begin to start a green bank? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think the first step is really uh, to determine if a green bank will serve the needs of the community. 
And this is what we did here in Colorado. We essentially did what we called a landscape analysis. We didn't want to replicate already existing efforts. So we took a look at what was getting financed in Colorado. And we ultimately came to a determination that the Green Bank was the best solution. But we did that through uh, an 18-month analysis process uh, in which we essentially partnered with a consulting firm to help us do that landscape analysis and ultimately identify what market barriers to finance existed, what finance gaps resulted from those market barriers, and how best you could fill those gaps. And we ultimately landed on a green bank. The next step, it was really determining, should we reposition an existing entity to serve the role of a green bank? Uh, if we were creating a new institution, should it be a public entity? Um, you'll see green banks, some are actual state public entities, some are quasi-public entities, and then others like ours are a private nonprofit. So ultimately determining what's the optimal structure for the green bank. Um, and then from there, it's really just laying out the roadmap, but you're creating a business. So identifying, trying to layer uh, those financing challenges and gaps, the things that aren't getting financed in your state, how you can do it in an economical manner, and how you can generate enough revenue to make sure that you're not reliant on public capital forever. Again, these institutions, the ethos is to become financially solvent uh, within a few years so that you are then essentially acting as a, a, a very traditional lender. Strong business plan, right products, all these things engineers are really bad at. So I'm really glad people like you are on the problem, Paul. Um, thank you again so much for your time, Paul. I could talk for hours, pick your brain about green banks. Uh, but I think we'll go ahead and end there. For people interested, where can they find you? Well, we do have a website, which they can find us at www.cocleanenergyfund.com. Um, and my email address and phone number is listed on that website. So I would definitely invite folks to reach out. I love talking about this stuff. And I, I also would invite folks that are working on projects that have encountered some of these challenges to please reach out to us. We'd love to hear about these challenges. And although we may not be able to address them immediately, that gives us more data points to go to potential funders and other investors to try to mobilize this capital. So please don't be shy. We'd, uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to um, talk through how we can uh, potentially help you and your projects. Thank you so much, Paul. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Colorado Roo. Uh, stay safe out there and have a good one.